If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In the early 19th century, Europe was convulsed by a conflict that pitted major powers against France and had significant repercussions across the globe. In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we'll be delving into the history of the Napoleonic Wars. Answering your questions was Dr Mike Report, reader in modern European history at the University of Glasgow. And putting the questions to Mike was John Borkham. Um, to begin, I mean, it's probably the most obvious question, but perhaps the most difficult to answer succinctly. What were the Napoleonic Wars? Well, the Napoleonic Wars were a series of conflicts that savaged Europe between 1803 and 1815. And there were repercussions across the world as well. So they were a global conflict as well. And we've maybe talk about that a little bit later on. And the wars are usually numbered by the coalitions that were raised against Napoleonic France between 1803 and 1815. And because the Napoleonic Wars, in a sense, followed on from the French Revolutionary Wars, the the, the the Napoleonic Wars are actually the wars of the third to the seventh coalitions, the first two coalitions being those of the French Revolutionary Wars in the 1790s. So it's a little bit confusing. But um, but yes, they are the conflicts um, which are centred around Napoleon and, and Napoleonic France, but they have much wider repercussions than that. Indeed. Terry Mahal from Instagram wants to know, what started the Napoleonic Wars in the first place? I mean, there you, you kind of mentioned that they're a continuation of the French Revolutionary Wars. No, absolutely. Um, I, there, there are many explanations for this. I think you can take a long view, uh, and one long view, which not all historians agree with, by the way, is that the Napoleonic Wars represented a collapse of the international system. Um, that, that had really kind of dictated or shaped European international relations since the uh, 17th century, based on the system of the balance of power. And uh, this collapse came about primarily because of the unleashing of French military power in the wake of the French Revolution. And other European powers really struggled to find ways of, 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 um, of containing that. But then that was because they had their own conflicts to think about too. So it, it was it was a, a collapse of the of this international state system. In the medium term, they came about because of the French Revolutionary Wars themselves. Um, these are the wars of the first two collisions between 1792 uh, and 1802, and they left France in a commanding strategic position in Western Europe. And this is something that no other European power could tolerate because it appeared to threaten their own strategic security. So any peace which occurred in 1802, the Treaty of Amiens, uh, was going to be really a truce. And in the short term, um, it's simply because this peace of Amiens of 1802, which ended the French Revolution Wars, which ended the War of the Second Coalition, um, wasn't really honoured by either side. Either, neither side really trusted each other, and uh, the and and it broke down in 1803. Uh, so, in a sense, the conflict resumed. It was it was really just a pause, an Amiens truce, as it's sometimes called. Let's go back a bit and talk about the man at the heart of this, Napoleon. Um, had quite a lot of questions from readers about Napoleon himself and his origins. Jonathan Rogers wants to know, how did a young, inexperienced artillery officer become such a military genius and become known for redefining warfare? It's thanks in no small part to the French Revolution itself. 
And Bonaparte was from nobility. He was from Corsican nobility, a fairly minor nobility in, in the French scheme of things. But so he would never have been disbarred from the French officer corps. And indeed, he did his, his, his training under the old regime, under the old monarchy. So that was fine. But what the revolution did was it unlocked careers to talent in the army, in government, in law, elsewhere, um, rather than to birth and status. So for people of Bonaparte's background, uh, this made opened up more opportunities. Even though he was noble and he was never barred from the officer corps, the chances of him maybe advancing really high up were probably slimmer than they would have been if it hadn't been for the French Revolution. The other reason is that the French Revolution itself very soon got embroiled in the European conflict, in the French Revolutionary Wars. Um, and this was massive conflict, very high mortality rates. And it's it's a horrible thing to say, um, that the, the death rate amongst officers opened up opportunities, if you can call it that, for younger officers to come through, young, ambitious, politically motivated, completely committed officers to, to come through. And Napoleon initially at least wore some Republican credentials fairly visibly. So, and that too, plus the emigration of royal officers who didn't accept the revolution, who fled abroad, uh, joined other armies or formed their own army, also created opportunities within the French upper ranks. Um, and as for Napoleon himself, he first comes to the attention um, of the French government, the French Revolution government in 1793 at the siege of Toulon, when uh, he commanded the artillery that helped eventually repel the British from the Mediterranean seaport. And then again in 1795, when he was the commander of artillery in Paris itself, which actually managed to uh, to crush a royalist uprising against the convention, which was the parliament at the time. And then also as a very, very, you know, mind-numbingly successful military commander in the invasion of Italy in 1796, um, which led to him in 1797 being able to virtually dictate terms on his own to Austria, which is one of France's most resilient enemies. So his rise was utterly meteoric. I mean, if you think that he uh, comes from being a relative unknown in 1793 to ruling France after taking power in a coup d'état in 1799. That is six years. It six, takes six years for him to rise from being a fairly uh, an unheard of general, unheard of uh, commander rather, to ruler of the, one of the most powerful king countries in in Europe. Amazing. Yeah, and one of the most important kind of moments in that is the invasion of Egypt. Don Diago wanted to know a bit more about that. Yeah, that is uh, why he invades, uh, um, for a range of reasons. Strategically, uh, or it's, it's to create an empire in the Middle East. Um, and this doesn't come out with the blue. Uh, there are documents in the national, in the French Foreign Ministry archives, for example, where old regime, the old royal ministers back in this 18, earlier in the 18th century, were talking about Egypt as a potential candidate for French conquest, partly to make up for the loss of French position in Canada um, and in India at the hands of the British and the British East India Company, um, especially after the Seven Years' War. So it had been discussed already. And what made it actually happen were maybe three other things. First of all, a desire to threaten the British in India. Um, major uh, British presence, very important to British commerce uh, and, and, to, and to government revenue and so on. So you put an army in Egypt. You also gives you a presence on the Red Sea from which you could potentially threaten the British across the Arabian Sea. So that's one reason. Also, it gives the French a military presence, a strategic presence in the Eastern Mediterranean, which is also important for various trade routes and so on. From the French government's perspective, looking at very, very cynically, if it is, isn't already cynical enough, um, it's all about maybe getting rid of Bonaparte. Bonaparte by 1798 is incredibly successful. He's almost running policy on his own when he was ra rampaging around Italy and, and invading Austria itself. And so he's a danger. He commands the loyalty of his men and uh, he's potential threat to the directory itself, which is the French government of the day. So you say, yeah, Bonaparte, you do what you want. Go and invade Egypt. You've, you're sending him about a thousand miles away um, and you might get rid of him for good. Um, for Napoleon as well himself, it was ambition. 
Egypt would possibly become his own fiefdom, and he had certain ideas about that, his own little domain. And at the same time, he knew that an invasion of Egypt would enhance his own prestige, because the French public showed a great deal of, of interest in Egypt, and ancient Egypt in particular. There had been lots of travel writers going to Egypt in the 18th century. So there's a real interest in this. So it had multiple reasons behind it. That's a good question. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, Napoleon's personal image now. How does he become so cherished by people that had recently beheaded their king? I mean, that's a question posed by John Warren on Facebook. I mean, that's a really good, that's a really good question because it seems mystifying to us now because we are used to seeing him as a warmonger, you know, as, you know, the ogre of Europe. Uh, and people in Britain aren't the only people to see him that way. Um, uh, there are people in France who see him that way and saw him that way at the time. Um, but really bizarrely and counterintuitively, and I, I, th- this is counterintuitive all, all for us, and I have no liking for Napoleon myself, we, he was a peacemaker, really bizarrely. But this peacemaker, after he comes to power in 1795, and it was peace with victory. After he seizes power in 1799, he defeated the Austrians at the Battle of Marengo in 1800 and forced them to come to terms in 1801 at the Treaty of Lunaville. Then, almost amazingly, um, he, manages, he managed to uh, come to terms with the British at the Peace of Amiens, and there are other signatories to that treaty. And although the war restarts technically in 1803, there's no real fighting, at least in Europe. There's plenty overseas, in Haiti, for example, in the Caribbean. But there's no real fighting in Europe until, um, uh, until in earnest, really, until 1805. So what that means meant was that between his seizure of power, round of, like, the, the aftermath of the seizure of power in 1800, up to 1805, France is not exactly at peace, but it wasn't really being kind of immersed in conflict in the way it had been for the previous decade or so. And it was precisely in that period that Napoleon was A, able to consolidate his power, and B, to leave his most constructive legacies, such as the Napoleonic Code, such as the Concordat that ended the conflict between the Republican state, the revolution state, if you like, and the Catholic Church, which had torn French society apart and had called civil war. He was able to try to bring together the old royal elites with the new revolutionary elites, and he had some success with that. So he tried to combine the core principles of the revolution, so to keep those, keep what he thought was good about them, with the order and hierarchy and the authoritarianism of the the old monarchy. But there's a double edge to this, and this wasn't universally popular. And yes, there were times when he was popular, but not always. Um, And this popularity was really delicate. I mean, he knew that he had seized power in a really in a fashion which was of dubious legality. He himself was always vulnerable to coup d'état, to plots, to assassination attempts. These happened, um, and also he tied his fortunes to, to conflict and to conquest. So he was very, very fearful that if he began to lose, it would be all over for him. So, although yeah, he 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 did a lot to try to consolidate his popularity and his position and his power in France. He was always acutely aware, and he was right to be aware, that his position was always very delicate and rather, and sometimes very tenuous indeed. Absolutely. And let's delve into some of the, the, the major battles and moments in the Napoleonic Wars, and also the French military itself. Richard Goldstein on Twitter wants to know, what was it about the French military that made it able to defeat so many European rivals? Yeah, well, first of all, the armies of the French Revolution, Napoleon, inherited a wealth of, of some really innovative ideas from French ancien regime military reformers, old regime military reformers and theorists about, for example, artillery, the use of artillery, um, the the movement of infantry, infantry tactics on the battlefield, um, about mobilizing the resources of a country, uh, and so on, the use of skirmishers, logistics, all these things. And a lot of these ideas came in response to the catastrophic defeat that France suffered during the Seven Years' War, which ended in 1763. Um, so there's a lot of these thing, ideas knocking around. And the old regime army was beginning to kind of implement some of these. But the revolution gave the French military the opportunity 
uh, and gave the revolutionaries themselves the opportunity to actually completely overhaul the army and to introduce these ideas with a vengeance. And one of the most important of these was the idea of the citizen army, if you like, the idea of the nation in arms, the idea that every citizen should be a soldier and every soldier a citizen. Um, and in 1793, this was imposed, um, it was, or if you like, inflicted on French society with something called the levé en masse, the mass levy, which was the mobilization not only of all men into the French army, the, those who could fight, but also the mobilization of French society itself for the war effort. That carried a great deal of cost and it came during the terror. And that's how it was achieved was through terror. But Napoleon inherits this mass mobilization and he inherited a system of conscription which dated to 1798, which was incredibly, I would say, hideously effective. Um, every year, people were, were drawn into the army. They're called classes each year. And the more wasteful of human life that his campaigns became, and they became increasingly wasteful as the Napoleonic Wars ground on one after the other, um, he would call up earlier, earlier classes and younger and younger soldiers so that as he began to lose his seasoned veterans, um, as they began to die, um, um, you know, get too old even, um, that you ended up having much an army which was much less well-trained, much less experienced. And so his battles became, the carnage increased. He began, they became real slogging matches. I mean, absolutely hideous. Um, the other reason was logistics and organization. Uh, the French Revolution experimented with creating, breaking armies down into self-sustaining units, which included artillery, cavalry, and infantry, um, which could sustain an engagement on their own for some time, while the rest of the army co converged on the point of contact with the enemy. Napoleon enlarged this and made this really big with his core system, each of them commanded by a, a marshal. That allowed them to move across the countryside, the massive the you know, campaign theater, um, keeping in touch with each other, which also depended on very good communications with staff officers carrying dispatches, so that when a corps met the main body of the enemy army, it could sustain a battle, in theory, for 24 hours by its own, while the rest of the corps converged on that point relieved it, and then hopefully, from the French point of view, defeated that army. So, and these, this, this organization of the army also allowed the French army to rely less on supply trains and supply depots, which was the Ancien Regime way, the old regime way, and to live off the land. The problem with living off the land was while it allowed you to move fast and to move in this dispersed way, what it also did was it also provoked a great deal of hatred and a great deal of resistance. Um, so there was a cost to the way Napoleon waged war. But in terms of actually defeating um, enemies, <laughs> your opponents, it was very, very effective. You, you talked about the, sort of the, the military mindset there. Angela on Twitter wants to know, were, were there any notable advances in the military technology itself? You know, for example, better guns, yeah, etc. Um, I always found this a really interesting question. Uh, I, think, I think the honest answer is not really. Nothing game-changing anyway. There were certainly innovations. Um, there were Congreve rockets, which the British the Royal Artillery, I think it was, experimented with. Uh, and that was an idea brought in from India, actually. Um, the British had encountered them when they, when they fought uh, Tipu of Mysore in southern India in the 18th century. Um, there were use of balloons, hot air balloons for, for observation. And the French um, used those. I've read some documents, actually, in the Belgian archives um, of, of, of dispatches from these balloons saying, hey, you know, this is what we're seeing of the enemy movements. Um, also, the French developed a telegraph, which wasn't a modern-day electronic, you know, Morse code-type telegraph, but rather a system of semaphore signals from the frontiers to Paris in order to, in order to spread news about what's happening on the frontiers quickly. Um, and there were even experiments with submarines, uh, people attempted to kind of create su 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 submarine warfare for the first time. Um, but what was different, perhaps, was the way in which the existing technology was used, whether it was musketry, artillery, and so on and so forth, and used on the battlefield on a much larger scale, in a much more standardized way, and in a much more flexible way. And I think that's what also makes the French so formidable as adversaries, um, at least in the earlier part of the wars. Indeed. Now, we've talked about land. What about sea? and Specifically, what about the Battle of Trafalgar in October 1805? Why does Britain win? Ah, yeah. 
Okay. Um, there were long-term reasons, of course, there always are in, in, in history, and there were contingencies on the day. Long-term, the problem that both the French and the Spanish navies, and they were their allied at that time, and w- when, when the British attacked uh, the, 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 the fleet, it was the combined fleet of the French and Spanish, um, they've suffered very, in the long-term, real problems with the supply of manpower. Although they're both maritime states, the number of people, uh, to use Theo Mayen's um, term, following the sea as part of their career was relatively limited. The Royal Navy had a problem with, uh, Britain had a problem with manpower, but nowhere near as acute as those of the French and the Spanish. So one of the problems was, was getting experienced seasoned sailors for the French and the Spanish navies. There are other problems as well, naval stores, keeping ships stocked with, with materials and, and tar, pitch, hemp, copper, uh, uh, timber, and so on and so forth. Um, the problem was particularly aggravated for the French by the Royal Navy blockade of the French ports, which had begun in, uh, you know, back in 1793. And it meant that the French Navy, even when it could recruit sailors, found it really hard to teach, train, and to give um, French crews the experience they need to sail on the high seas, but also under in, in, combat, in combat conditions. Another problem was gunnery. British gunners fired at the hulls. So even if you miss, you're going to hit something. You're going to hit rigging. You're going to hit, you know, you're going to hit masts. And even if you aim too low, you know, the speed of, 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 the, of the shell would bounce off the, often bounce off the surface of the sea and hit something. Um, and the, so the British were very, British gunning was very aggressive, very accurate. Um, and it went to cause the maximum damage to the vessels. A lot of French gunners come from the French privateering tradition which goes from privateers being kind of legalized piracy, if you like, merchantmen who are given uh, licenses by their own government to arm themselves, mount cannon, for example, on their vessels, and to go out and raid enemy shipping. The purpose of this being to capture shipping, bring it, bring it back to port, and to gain a prize, prize money for this. And apparently a lot of French gunners came from this tradition. So what they did is they tended to fire at the rigging, and the mass in order to disable the ship so that you could then board the vessel, capture it, and tow it back to port for prize money. Um, the problem with that is, is that in the swell, for example, of the sea, for example, you could often miss because, you know, you weren't aiming at the hull. If you, if, if, if you fired at the wrong moment, the, 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 the shell would, 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 would whistle harmlessly over the, over the rigging. Now, those are two long-term issues that the French and Spanish fleets had and why the British were, were stronger, you know, not just on the day, but generally, seamanship and, and gunnery. But also, on the day itself, the wind was very weak. All the vessels engaged were traveling at a very slow speed of one knot, one nautical mile an hour. The French admiral, Villeneuve, had set sail from Cadiz trying to bring the Spanish and the French fleets into the Mediterranean. This is part of the counterpoise of the Austerlitz campaign and all that. Um, And the British fleet was approaching very slowly because of this very low wind speed. Now, Villeneuve might have got away and got through, and whether he passed through Gibraltar was another matter, but he he might have got away from Nelson's fleet. If, 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 if maybe he just kept going, but he chose to turn around and head back to Cadiz. That was fatal. And some of the Spanish commanders watching this happen, watching a signal to, to come about, knew this, that this was fatal, because that gave Nelson time to catch. And Nelson's plan itself was very daring. And relied on the aggression of his individual captains and crews, and he could depend on that. His famous order is, you know, England expects that every man shall do his duty. But actually, in many ways, that's less important than the one he gave his captains the night before, which was no captain can do any wrong if he puts his vessel alongside an enemy one and attacks it relentlessly, or words to that effect. Um, so, you know, he could depend on that. Uh, and that's what happened uh, on the day. And I mean, pre Trafalgar, up until that point, I mean, was was there a threat of a French invasion of mainland Britain? You know, was that serious? Um, yes, and it was serious. Um, uh, th- there were maybe I would say there are two broad periods in which this was feasible. Uh, first of all, in, between late 1796 and the summer of 1798, so during the, the, the War of the Second Coalition, so the last of the French Revolutionary Wars, when the French had conquered um, the Netherlands, had also made an alliance with Spain, 
And so what this does is the, the Dutch and the, and the Spanish were two major naval powers, of course. And this, what this did was this meant this stretched the Royal Navy's capacity to protect home waters. So what the French had to do was to find a way of using uh, this advantage and get an army across. And the Achilles heel for the British Isles in general was Ireland. And there were attempts to land forces in Ireland in late 1796 and 1797. And, there, and, a, and, a, and a, a force was actually landed in Ireland in 1798 with the Irish Revolution um, against British rule. And um, when that revolution was crushed, uh, certainly, uh, and it was done with great brutality uh, and appalling atrocities, but actually what happened prior to that was that the French managed to land an army. And it had some success at first, but then the British managed to bring out a force and it, and, it, and it mopped up the French force. Now, Ireland, of course, is not mainland, mainland Britain. Um, but the danger there was that it would be a jumping off point eventually. If the French and with Irish allies managed to consolidate their position in Ireland, then it would leave Britain much more vulnerable to invasion. And it's in this period, of course, that you get a landing on the Pembrokeshire coast in 1797. And everybody knows that that's the last time that mainland Britain was, was actually invaded by a small French force. Um, it doesn't, so it doesn't happen. They, they don't manage to land on mainland Britain, but it's a real danger. The other chance, maybe actually less acute, although it's the one people know about more, I think, is between 1803 and 1805. In the wake of the Amiens Truce, you know, Napoleon had built up an invasion force in northern French ports. Now, this was the idea, the, the army of England, the Alame d'Angleterre, as it was called, was going to cross the channel at the opportune moment and to land. Um, there are two problems with that. First of all, the kind of the, the, the French naval capacity to actually bring this, to bring this about with the Royal Navy there. Um, and then secondly, the fact that war broke out, had also broken out in Europe itself. The Austrians were mobilizing, the Russians were slowly mobilizing and, were, were, and began to look challenging. So Napoleon in October, in, sorry, in the autumn of 1805, decided to abandon the plan to invade Britain and to strike eastwards and said, knock Austria out of the war before the Russians arrived, and if need be, take on the Russians, and then turn their attention to Britain. So sometimes you hear people say, well, Trafalgar saved Britain from French invasion. That's not quite true, I think. Um, Napoleon had already made the decision that the greater immediate threat came from the Austrians uh, and the Russians. He needed to knock them out first before he could deal with, with, with Britain. What Trafalgar did ultimately, I think, was maybe make it much harder in the long run for the, for the, um, for the French to invade. And that leads us nicely into our next question, which concerns the Battle of Austerlitz which takes place just a few weeks after Trafalgar. Why is that such an important moment in these wars? Well, it's partly symbolic. Um, it's, it's often seen as a kind of a textbook Napoleonic battle and Napoleon's greatest victory and so on and so forth. Although things do go wrong, you know, all, all military plans do. You know, is that, that the truth? There's a lot of truth in the all plans, you know, go wrong on the first contact with the enemy. Um, it's just that it was such a major complete victory, particularly over the Austrians and, and, and the Russians who were there. One of the commanders there was Kutuzov, who later becomes a hero of, of 1812. So first of all, it's a textbook Napoleonic battle in, in that sense. Um, wider, it knocked Austria out of the war until 1809. And the importance of this was that Austria, other than the British, Austria had been the most resilient European opponent of Napoleon uh, and of the French, indeed, since the, the 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 wars had broken out back in 1792, since you know since the French Revolutionary Wars, so they've been incredibly resilient, and they get knocked out for quite a long time. Uh, so that that that's absolutely crucial. He also defeated the Russians at this. Now the Russians hadn't committed nearly all their forces, so they were able to regroup. And then Napoleon confronted them again in 1807, and we can talk about that later. But what it did is by knocking Austria and the Russians out of the equation for a while, when the Prussians finally joined in the war in 1806, the Prussians were fighting in Europe on their own against Napoleon. So he was able to completely maul them at the Battle of Jena-Auerstadt in 1806 um, uh, because the Prussians were pretty much on their own. 
So it really helped to kind of tip that whole balance within Central Europe and allowed them to go on and make further conquests. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Indeed, and you, you referenced it just there, but 1807 then, we have Battle of Friedland, uh, France defeats Russia in, in the June of that year. And I think, Mike, when we chatted before, you mentioned that um, you wanted to talk about the treaties of Tilsit. Uh, why, could you firstly explain what those were and also then um, explain why they were important? Well, the treaties of Tilsit famously held on a raft uh, on the River Neman, which is the, the boundary between the, the, the Russian Empire and, the, and, 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 and Prussia. Um, uh, or rather the French French presence, um, it, it was held in 1807. And there were two. There was the one which made peace with Prussia, which had been defeated at Jena Auerstadt, as I've, as I've already mentioned. Uh, there's, a, there's a French army occupying Berlin. It's utterly humiliating. So the Treaty of Tilsit was the treaty with which Napoleon effectively humiliated Prussia tore apart its territory, forced it to have an army, French army of occupation, uh, forced it also to really limit its, the size of its army. Um, and there's a key element here, which is the stripping of Prussia's Polish territory, gained during the partition of 1797, which I'll, I'll mention, uh, go back to in a moment. Now, the problem with this kind of humiliating treaty is that very few people can bear that kind of humiliation for long. And what it did was that actually provided a spark, a spur, if you like, for the Prussians to reform the military, to reform society, and to think about, although it didn't happen, political reform as well, and to rejuvenate Prussia so that by 1813 and after the defeat in Russia, it was willing, ready and willing to take on the French again. And in 1813, Prussia played a very important role in what was remembered as the German War of Liberation. So that's one of the really important things about Tilsit. From the Prussian perspective, the other part of Tilsit was the peace treaty between Napoleon and Tsar Alexander I of Russia. Um, And uh, this was very interesting and very significant because although the Russians had been mauled at the Battle of Friedland, as, as, as you said, John, in 1807, They had actually stood earlier, they had actually stood firm and actually managed to fight Napoleon to a standstill at the Battle of Eilau or Ilawa in Poland uh, earlier that year in driving snows. I mean, it was this horrible battle. I mean, a real, just utter carnage. So militarily, the Russians, although they'd been defeated, were still very much a force to be reckoned with. And so what Tilsit did was it effectively divided Europe into two spheres of influence. Napoleonic France and his empire in the West and Central Europe, Russia in the East. But so what that does is that set the scene for the ultimate French catastrophe, which was the invasion of Russia in 1812. And it did this uh, for 
couple of reasons. First of all, Tilsit compelled both Prussia, of course, but Russia too, to join Napoleon's continental system. And the continental system was devised by Napoleon in Berlin in 1806 as a means of trying to block British commerce from Europe and British manufacturing for Europe in particular, and creating an internal market, if you like, a captive internal market for French goods uh, uh, as well. Um, so it was an effort at waging economic warfare on the British, but it has to be watertight. So you have to get as many countries in it uh, as possible, including the Russians. This wasn't popular with many Russians, including and, and especially the Russian nobility, who prospered on exporting the grain grown by their serfs, by their peasants, to the British market, because Britain was already a net food importer from Europe and, and elsewhere at this time. Thirdly, in creating, what it does is, is it, I said I would go back to this point about Prussian territory in Poland being taken off Prussia. What Napoleon did with that was to create the Duchy of Warsaw in 1807. And the Duchy of Warsaw uh, was the, a rump, if you like, of an independent Poland, and which is why the Poles were amongst the most loyal allies of Napoleon right to the end. They were there, they were there at Waterloo, very famously. The problem from the Russian perspective is the resurrection of an independent Pol Polish state. And one of the Russian fears of this is that Napoleon would eventually convert it into a full-blown kingdom is that this would be a challenge to Russian strategic security, rightly or wrongly. That's how it was perceived in, in St. Petersburg. So these are bones of contention. The continental system and Poland are real bones of contention in, in Franco-Russian relations, and that is the friction, that's the background to Napoleon's invasion of Russia in 1812. Brilliant. And we'll, we'll come to the invasion of Russia in just a bit. You, you mentioned the continental system there. Now, that causes problems in the Iberian Peninsula. And it's, it's one of these, probably one of these very, it's a very tricky question to answer succinctly, but how does the Peninsula War fit into all of this? Well, as you say, John, it, it, it was originally the, the, the continental system. Uh, Napoleon has to enforce it. He has to make sure it's, it's, it's as watertight as possible. So he actually invaded, he actually attacked Portugal. And to do that, he had to get across Spain. Uh, so initially, of course, the Spanish are, are allies uh, of, of the French, but the whole thing just goes um, and you know you have a, a you had a Spanish uprising, the Dos Maios in, in 1808 against the against the uh, against French dominance, and this this plus the Portuguese alliance with with, with the Britons or the British supporting the Portuguese ended up uh, creating a really um, horrible situation for the French in Spain. Um, I don't think you'd want to be a French soldier fighting in Spain <laughs> at all. Um, so the, the, the way it fit, fitted in, fit into the wider European context, the wider conflict was the, con the, the, the police attempt to enforce the continental system. But also militarily and strategically, it famously it become, became the Spanish ulcer. The, the French got so bogged down in Spain, they could never really put let, let their political system, their legal system, put down roots, although there were some Spanish, you know, minority of Span tiny minority of Spanish nobles who were who wanted to see those kinds of reforms. Um, and it becomes a real drain on French manpower and resources. Plus, of course, it creates another front against France. Um, Wellington, the British, the Portuguese, their Spanish allies, um, and the guerrillas who are um, an interest, interest, very interesting to look at, um, uh, create, effectively open up uh, uh, another front. And um, it, when France got invaded in 1814 at the end of the war, perhaps the most famous invasion was the one by the Prussians, the, you know, the Austrians and so on, when they, who take Paris. But also, the, the Allies crossed the, the Pyrenees too from Spain in 1814 and, and, and took took Toulouse and took, took Bordeaux. So that it all it all added up to the downfall of Napoleon, ultimately. Indeed. And actually, while, while we are on the subject of the Peninsula War, just briefly, I mean, how does that affect Latin America? Oh, yeah. Well, what it did was it ruptured uh, the connections between uh, Spain, uh, the, the, the metropole, if you like, and Spain's colonies in, in South America. And there had already been you know, grumblings. There'd already been kind of the odd revolt here and there. Um, there'd already been the, the Creole elites, for example, had already thought, you know, well, maybe, you know, we, we can have freer trade, you know, with, with North America, for example. Some had, had drawn inspiration for the example of the American Revolution. 
And initially, uh, this, the, the resistance to authority actually seems to have been a, a desire to actually be loyal Sp- Spanish subjects amongst the elites. But ultimately, it turned into a, 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 a struggle for independence. From 1810, it started in Rio de, de la Plata in, in, in Argentina. In 1810, spread everywhere. And so, you know, and I think Mexico was almost the last to get independence in the 1830s. So it unleashed about 20 years of conflict in Latin America. Um, the other point is, though, is that, you know, the, 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 the Latin American wars of independence also involved not just these Creole elites thinking about independence, but also a whole wealth of other groups. Um, uh, you know, Native Americans, for example, um, the, the the mestizos of the people the people of mixed race uh, all d- all demanding rights and slavery as well it th- thrust slavery onto the agenda and abolition so the the none of this was caused by the peninsular war but the peninsular war provided the space in which this kind these kinds of revolutions these kinds of bids for independence and these kinds of demands for wider rights could actually take place let's cross back over the atlantic and back to Russia then. 1812 then, what, why is that a turning point? When does it all go wrong for Napoleon? It was, it was certainly a turning point, certainly. You know, one could perhaps identify others. First of all, it showed that Napoleon could be, I mean, comprehensively defeated, uh, which was really important because if you wanted to uh, resist Napoleon, you had, to, you had to make sure that you would win because the, the price of defeat at the hands of Napoleon wasn't a limited peace treaty. It was... Utter, it was utter, I think you could almost call it diplomatic sadism. It was utter diplomatic ruination. Uh, and you might even lose your state. Um, so it had, people were encouraged to resist, not least Prussia. And one of the crucial decisions the Russians made after defeating Napoleon in Russia in 1812 was to keep going. There was some debate after Napoleon had been driven from Russia itself. There was some debate as to whether or not that was it, job done, we can stop. But they decided to keep going. Uh, they decided, the Russians decided, rightly, I think, that their strategic security could not actually be guaranteed unless Napoleon was completely defeated. And they did that with other European allies, with the Prussians, the Austrians, the British, even the Swedes came in at this, this, this point in time, um, and others. So that was, that was a very important moment in the history of the Napoleonic Wars. And the Napoleonic Empire began to unravel from there. It took time. Uh, Napoleon still had a lot of fight in him. He could still go back and raise more money. But the crucial thing about the unraveling of the empire, the rolling back of the Napoleonic presence in Europe, was that the French, both you know the armies of the French Revolution, but also the armies of Napoleon, all began to rely quite heavily on recruiting allied forces, whether it's the sister republics and the armies of the French Revolution, or whether it's the satellite states um, and annex, annex, annex parts of Europe in the case of Napoleon. Um, uh, and by losing this territory, he lost those sources of manpower and those sources of taxation. So increasingly, more and more of the burden of fighting the war was placed on France itself. And Napoleon's fatal miscalculation was that Oh, I can, you know, I, I I can't make peace with 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 Europe unless I win. Because if I if I don't win, I will somehow be overthrown in France. And there's maybe some truth in that. But what we know from pre- the reports of his prefects, who were his boots on the ground in France itself, is that most French people just wanted peace. And so that was really, in that sense, the what happened in 1812 led directly to the final defeat. Well, the the, the the, the penultimate defeat, if you like, in, in 1814 when the Allies took Paris and sent him off to exile on, on Elba. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. A lot of people were already beginning to imbibe the idea of Napoleon as a liberator rather than as a conqueror. I mean, it's it's it's, it's nonsense in many ways. Um, but executing him would have caused needless political tension, not just within Europe and within France itself, but perhaps also in Britain too. Because there are, there are enough people within British public opinion who find him fascinating rather than repulsive. So ultimately, Napoleon abdicates. He's exiled to Elba, and then he escapes. He comes back, and then you've got what's called the Hundred Days, haven't you? 
the sort of I guess the, the climax of this is the Battle of Waterloo, and unsurprisingly, we had a lot of questions about this. Chris Bowden on Instagram wants to know: Had the Prussians not arrived, would the French have won? That is a really good question, but it's really hard to say. I think probably not. On the day itself, the Prussians certainly, when they arrived, they certainly tipped the scales decisively in the Allies' favour. Um, I think the arrival of the Prussian made it almost certain that Napoleon wasn't going to win. But Napoleon, I suspect, was already beginning to run out of options by that stage. Um, he tried and failed to break through the British and Allied lines. He'd scored his men had scored some successes. They finally took Les Saint, for example, but at immense cost. Um, I think what the arrivals of the Prussians may have done is convinced him to throw in the Imperial Guard to try in one last effort to break through the Allied line. Um, but he may have done that anyway. Um, I don't know, to be honest. But what is certain is that even if the French had won at Waterloo they almost certainly would have gone on to lose the war ultimately. Because victory at Waterloo would have meant going on to fight the Austrians, the Russians, um, the rest of the Prussians, <laughs> the British would have, you know, wouldn't have given up. Um, they would have, Napoleon would have had to face all of Europe again. Um, and once those forces combined, or even if he tried to pick them off one by one, uh, Napoleon would have been crushed ultimately. So what Waterloo did... I think, was to save lives, ultimately. I mean, horrible battle, um, utter carnage, one of the bloodiest, you know, after, after Borodino in Russia in 1812. But what it did was it saved Europe from further bloodshed by ending the war after 100 days, after Napoleon's uh, return from Elba. And Chris Bowden has a, another uh, question, actually. Who was the better general, Wellington or Napoleon? Ooh, I'm afraid I'm going to give a non-committal answer to this one. <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Uh, they were probably evenly matched. Um, both were good at logistics, which is absolutely key um, um, in, in any war. Uh, both were excellent strategists and tacticians. For me, Wellington has the edge in one sense because he was, I'm sure he was less likely to sacrifice men, lives on the scale that Napoleon did especially towards the end. I find it very hard to imagine Wellington saying something like Napoleon said, which was after that carnage uh, at the Battle of Yelo in, in 1807, that never mind, one night in Paris will replace this. In other words, you know, one night of further re human reproduction and I can get more soldiers. I can't imagine Wellington saying that. And Napoleon probably has the edge in the sense, uh, in another sense, in that he probably inspired more personal devotion amongst his men, especially his old guard, especially you know the people who, who, um, who, who, who fought along with him for for quite a long time. I think where Wellington was actually vastly superior to, to Napoleon was less perhaps on the battlefield uh, than as a diplomat. I've already kind of intimated that Napoleon tended to impose truly draconian, punitive treaties on his defeated allies. Um, and this ha actually has, creates a backlash ultimately. It, it doesn't actually win the peace. It doesn't, you know, it, it creates resentment. You know, it means that there are people are out for revenge and all that and want to, want to resurge. Wellington actually was one of the negotiators, British negotiators of the Congress of Vienna. Um, and, you know, the Congress of Vienna had its faults. You know, it wasn't liberal. It doesn't create a liberal European order. It doesn't make Europe safe for democracy or for constitutional reform or, or national sovereignty or anything like that. What it did do, though, was it maintained the general European peace for a very long time. One of the reasons it did that was because not just Wellington, but Tsar Alexander I understood that if you create the conditions in which France is permanently punished and crushed and humiliated, a harsh peace imposed on France, you know, wouldn't last. You know, the the, the French would find ways for for revenge um, and 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 to come out of this. And and the main treaty was the Treaty of Paris, but Vienna created the kind of wider security architecture. And and Wellington, I think, understood this. And an interesting question: I mean, why was Napoleon exiled again instead of being executed? Does that tie into your Does that tie into your point about not wanting to totally humiliate France? Well, that's right. It's partly that is, is the, the the British um, who who had him actually, who, you know, who 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 eventually got him. Um, 
knew that he still had some popularity in France. There's still lots of Bonapartists running around, uh, lots of ex-army officers. Uh, this, uh, you know, there's still an army, for example, and so on, uh, running around. Um, also, it kind of wasn't done. You know, regicide, from the British perspective, regicide was something that French revolutionary Jacobins did. And even though nobody recognized Napoleon as, the, as a legitimate ruler, I mean, it's significant, for example, that when Napoleon did escape from Elba, the Allies declared war not on France, but on Napoleon. They declared him an outlaw. So in theory, you know, in terms of international law, he was outside international law, right? So in theory, he could have been killed. Um, but that's not the sort of thing that, that, that the Allies were trying to drive at. Plus, so it would have made a martyr of him in France. It might have stoked opposition in France. Plus, Napo- people were fascinated by Napoleon. Um, as I said, I don't, don't have any liking for the guy. But he wasn't Hitler. He, a lot of people were already beginning to imbibe the idea of Napoleon as a liberator rather than as a conqueror. I mean, it's, 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 it's nonsense in many ways. Um, but executing him would have caused needless political tension, not just within Europe and within France itself, but perhaps also in Britain too. Because there are, there are enough people within British public opinion who find him fascinating rather than repulsive. You know, they don't like him, they're scared of him, um, but they, there's a certain image of him. Uh, in Europe. And in many ways, this is the beginnings of the Napoleonic myth, the Napoleonic legend. Plus, it might have created even greater instability than it already was with the demobilization of, of soldiers and sailors, um, the, the growth of a, of a parliamentary reform movement, which is beginning to demand you know, wider access to the suffrage, the right to vote, for example, and so on and so forth. The British had a lot of other things to worry about. You know, executing Napoleon probably wouldn't have helped in any of this respect. A brilliant answer. Let's move on to some broader questions now submitted by uh, some of our listeners. Alice on Instagram wants to know, what was the role of women in the Napoleonic Wars? And did it vary from country to country? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, it varied. Um, I, think, I think that's a really good question. Uh, and there's been a lot of recent work done the last 10, 15 years on women in the Napoleonic Wars, I mean, both in the British context, but elsewhere in, in, in the Russian context, in, in Prussian context, and so on. Um, yeah, I, I, women do a lot. Um, this is a war in which societies as a whole got mobilized. Um, so women played an important part. And perhaps I think the really interesting question that, that Alice asked was, you know, how does it vary across countries? I think it varied more across social background or, or class, if you like. Generally speaking, middle class and aristocratic women of, of whatever side they were, were involved in the mobilization of public opinion behind the war effort. Um, some of them wrote, some of them edited, you know, wrote for newspapers, wrote pamphlets and so on. They often raised money for the wounded soldiers, for orphans, for widows and so on and so forth. Um, they, they did all kinds of things to kind of galvanize public opinion, to help the war effort. Um, producing uniforms, for example, and so on and so forth, raising money and, and those sorts of things. Um, working class women, if, if I can call them that without being too anachronistic, worked often more directly for the war effort. Um, you know, they you know they were already embedded in 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 certain industries such as clothing, <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, as seamstresses. So they they would they would be there making uniforms, they were there making bandages, they were working as nurses, and so on and so forth. They made all kinds of things, all kinds of contributions to the the war effort. And a very small number of women actually fought. Um, there's one case of a Russian woman fighting with the Russian cavalry in 1812, um, and there are a case of about 80 odd documented women who joined up, um, disguising uh, disguising uh, their, their 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 sex, and thereby um, um, you know going off going off to fight. And also in many armies, you had women there in supporting roles, very close to the front line. You know, uh, as as people, you know, feeding the soldiers, uh, in some cases marrying them. Uh, this 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 kind of thing happens in, in the British Army as as much as in any in any other. Uh, so women play lots of different roles uh, across the conflict. They're very much part of it. They're very much embroiled in it. Whether it's on the home front in civil society, whether it's actually on the front line itself, or very close to it. Fascinating. Um, got a, I've got a question here from Kate Hazlitt. What proportion of Europe's population died during the Napoleonic Wars? 
Um, and she actually says, in comparison to World War II. In comparison to World War II is, is really hideous. Um, the best comparison is with the First World War. In the, Nap- the Napoleonic Wars alone, so not counting the French Revolution Wars, five million people died. It's, a, it's an estimate, it's the best estimate we have. Five million people died in the Napoleonic Wars between 1803 and 1815. Proportionately, in terms of the size of the European population at the time, that is the same number proportionately as in the First World War. Yeah, that's a staggering statistic. Yeah, it's stagger- and- staggering. And yeah, and I mean, another sort of, da- sort of slightly darker element of this as well is slavery. I mean, I think you mentioned it briefly earlier, but yeah, what, what was the effect on slavery overall? Well, one thing it did is, is consolidate it, um, it, it, at least in the French Empire. Uh, in, in Haiti, uh, uh, modern day Haiti, uh, which had been the col- French colony of Saint-Domingue um, in the Caribbean, uh, had had its own revolution in the 1790s, rising up against slavery uh, the, the the colonial system, uh, and um, ultimately, once slavery was abolished in the French Empire by the Republic, by the French Revolution in 1794, it the the Haitians uh, joined the French and helped fight off the British and the Spanish. Napoleon, coming to power, wanted to restore an empire in the Americas um, after his failure in Egypt, of course saw Haiti as absolutely essential to this because Haiti was one of the world's most prosperous producers of coffee and sugar, and that is based on slavery. So in 1802, he makes the decision, fatal decision, to try to restore slavery. Sent an army out there under his brother-in-law, Leclerc, um, and uh, they were defeated. Now, what that meant was that Haiti became the the, the second independent state in the Americas after the United States, because the Haitians won their independence in 1804. But elsewhere, slavery was reintroduced in the French Empire, in the other French Caribbean colonies, for example, uh, Guadeloupe and, and, and Martinique. And at this point, yes, the British abolished the slave trade, but slavery elsewhere was still very, very firm. If you then see, however, the impact of the Napoleonic Wars as being, you know, as feeding into the Latin American Wars of Independence, then indirectly they weaken slavery because slavery gets abolished in some of these countries when they get independence from Spain. But that's a really good question. Uh, a lot of the impact is indirect, but in the French context, it actually consolidates it, except in the case of Haiti, which is a, an, a really important exception. A great answer. Um, now, we, we kind of... this question sort of links back to what we discussed at the very start of this interview and it's actually it was actually posed by two separate people max quigley and ade mohammed and it's can the napoleonic wars be called a world war given the number of areas of combat um yes yes it can um i i think maybe not a world war i mean it depends how you define world war sorry historians love definitions um a world war I would define personally, and I know one of my colleagues actually work on the first and second wars might disagree with me on this, but a world war I would see as a conflict which spans the globe because the different belligerents, um, think of, say, Japan, uh, the United States, uh, Australia, Britain uh, in the Pacific areas and others, in the, and India in the Pacific area, uh, being and Japan being allied to the Axis powers, you know, Italy and Germany and Europe and so on and so forth. You see what I mean? They, they're fighting different wars in a sense, different campaigns, but they're tied together um, diplomatically and, and so on and so forth. So that is a world war in the sense it's, a, it's, a, it's lots of different conflicts which, which are bound together politically in some kind of way. Um, I would call these a global war global conflicts, because what they were was there was the, 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 the epicenter of the Napoleonic Wars properly called was in Europe, right? But that doesn't mean that there weren't other conflicts going around in the world which were tied into it, although they're separate. So you had lots of tensions going on in India, for example, and this lots of conflicts going on in India, and this allowed, for example, the French and the British to wage what we would call today wars by proxy, um, but very rarely to actually actively confront each other in, in, in India. Uh, you had the Latin American Wars of Independence, which you've seen, which were indirectly called. You had the British 
uh, an American War of 1812, which again is, is, is very much linked to the Napoleonic Wars, but was also connected to other local issues such as the conflicts over Canada, the, who's going to have Canada, uh, the, the, the problem with the frontier, British withdrawal or, uh, you know, from, from the Great Lakes area, and so on and so forth. Lots of things going on in the world, which were in some ways tied in to the Napoleonic Wars. Plus, of course, you had an imperial dimension to this. Once the various maritime powers get involved, such as the Dutch, the Spanish, the Portuguese, uh, the French themselves, and the British, you were going to have conflict over the, in, in various colonies, from, from the Pacific and Indonesia, for example, to South Africa, to the Caribbean, and so on. You, you, there was going to be conflict everywhere. But that, in a sense, is, is a colonial extension of the conflict in Europe. So I don't. it's a it's kind of subtle distinction between world war and global war. But it's 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 it, in the Poland Wars much more kind of overlappings, if you like, between different conflicts, pre-existing conflicts, which were bound together by by the Napoleonic strand, uh, often indirectly. And to conclude, then Toby wants to know what were the lasting ramifications of the Napoleonic Wars? Lots. Um, first of all, um, I said it earlier that Napoleon wasn't Hitler. Uh, while a lot of European states, you know, when the monarchies came back and all that after Napoleon was defeated, did undo everything the French had introduced. Uh, not all states did, and some then backpedaled on that. And one of the most important legacies for some parts of Europe, such as Belgium, the Rhineland in Western Germany, and Northern Italy as well, were, was, was the civil code, the Napoleonic Code where it was allowed, where, where the French regime was allowed to put down roots, so not like in places like Spain, where, where it was just all hell had broken loose uh, for the French there. Um, it, where it was allowed to put down roots, the civil code in particular, and the Concordat, the, 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 the religious pluralism allowed in the Concordat, the agreement with the Catholic Church, where they were put, put down roots. The, you, you had a fairly liberal legal system a system of laws that were actually fairly popular, at least amongst the middle classes. So that's one of the kind of strange legacies of this otherwise horrible conflict. The question is, was this worth the cost? Absolutely not. I don't think it was. But, but you know, that's one of the legacies. You get the breaking of empires, especially the Spanish. Uh, you get the making of others, especially the British, who end up being the dominant maritime and commercial and imperial power in the world. Um, the emergence of Russia, as today we would call it a superpower, and the two great hegemonic powers at either end of Europe in 1815 were the British and the Russians. This was a new strategic reality here. Uh, and the key thing was, is that from that point on, although the French and the British often came very close to conflict throughout the 19th century, you know, right up to the 1900s, they never quite did so. And this is because both the French and the British understood that the new strategic reality had emerged. Russia was now perhaps more of a greater threat to their strategic interests than vice versa. And the Russians felt the same way about Britain and, and France. Um, what you also get is domestically in a lot of European states, including Britain, is demands for greater citizenship. I, um, in response to Alice's question, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I said that women mobilize for the war effort, but that also allowed a lot of women to start thinking in terms of greater access to citizenship, not necessarily the right to vote, but greater legal rights and so on and so forth. A lot of more working class people who had sacrificed so much in the war began to think in terms of, well, what's our Jew? What is this new political order we're, 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 getting, we're getting having defeated Napoleon? Uh, the tyranny of Napoleon, if you like. And a lot of governments themselves had promised constitutions. The Prussian king, in order to mobilize his population, had said, I promise you that at the end of the war, you'll get a constitution. He didn't deliver on that promise. And of course, that leaves a lot of festering resentment. You know, what was the sacrifice all, all for? Um, in Britain, you know, you get a revival of the radical movement demanding parliamentary reform, so a widening of, of, of the suffrage. In Spain, you have a, le a constitutional legacy, the, 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 the parliament, the, the Cortes of Cadiz, um, passed a constitution, quite a radical constitution in 1812, and that became a liberal blueprint for liberal movements, not just in Spain, but for other parts of Europe. So there's constitutional legacy as well. But I think the most important thing now is historical memory. 
Uh, people still remember, you might remember the, the commemorations of Waterloo, which is an important aspect of British identity. But other European countries can look to their own conflicts. Russia, the Patriotic War of 1812, against Napoleon, was evoked by Stalin when he confronted the Nazi invasion and, and, the, and the Soviets when they confronted the Nazi invasion in 1941. Um, the War of Liberation in Germany in 1813, where the iconic battle is Leipzig, the Battle of Nations, a great defeat for the French, you know, where the, they... they, they not just fought by Germans, uh, the Prussians and Austrians and others, but but by others. But for the, it's 1813, the Battle of Leipzig is, is a key moment. Um, for Spain, it's the the, the the Constitution of 1812 and the Cortes of Cadiz, the resistance to the French. You know, the symbol of the guerrilla. Um, you know, which is a bit of a myth to some extent, um, as a lot of research by, for example, Charles Eastdale has shown. Um, so this, but also leaves a legacy of political symbols. Some modern day flags, the flag of Germany, the 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 um the black, red, gold came from the insignia of a volunteer militia who support who um, fought against Napoleon, and they were kind of a li- liberal intelligentsia. The flag of Italy, the tricolor, was given was created um, by Napoleon when he created the Cispadane Republic in the 1790s. So the historical memory of the Napoleonic Wars is still very much with us and still very much alive, for better or for worse. Mike, that's a fantastic answer and also a great place to end the podcast. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm sure listeners will be really pleased to have their questions answered. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. That was Dr. Mike Report, reader in modern European history at the University of Glasgow. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.